0: A Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. On August 17th, 1897, three cowboys ride into Pineville, Missouri with rifles on their backs and sacks in their hands. This is a good old-fashioned holdup.
1: Two of the men rush into the bank and hold the tellers and manager at gunpoint, They were told that there's $50,000 in the vault. A pretty payday.
0: The third stands outside guarding the doorway. They're the smallest and youngest of the group, known only as the kid. But they're actually the most dangerous.
1: As the town begins to realize that their bank is being robbed, people start to gather and watch. And the kid yells, Any man who tries to cross the door dies.
0: No one who's crossed this gang has lived more than three months after. So nobody makes a move.
1: When the three robbers ride out of town with their guns held high and loot on their saddles, no one knows that the kid is actually the leader of this gang. And he's not a kid at all, but a woman named Cora Hubbard, the bravest woman highway robber of the century.
0: I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema, and this is Crime of a Lifetime. I feel like we've spent a lot of time on this show talking about crimes from the distant past, where women, they were held to these weird cultural standards that they don't really make sense to us in the year of 2022, but also by the same token, they sound all too familiar. And I think that the result is I just feel really depressed.
1: Just to sort of you know, revisit some of the women that we covered in this time period, we have Pearl Bryan. And if you don't remember her story, she was someone who was pregnant and she was unwed and she dealt with the cultural pressures that women experienced in the late 1800s. And then we have someone like Jane Toppin who committed these heinous crimes and because she was a woman, she was able to get away with them for so long. And our next case is of Cora Hubbard. And all of the expectations and preconceived notions about who women are supposed to be get thrown out the window in her case.
0: Yeah, it's the 1890s and Cora is the OG badass. She is not like the other women in Missouri. If she were in high school, she would be that cool, edgy girl that smokes behind the building. Was that you? (laughs) Do you hear my voice? (laughs) Obviously it was me. (laughs) She doesn't give a damn what you think, and neither do I. You might call... no.
1: (laughs) You care deeply about
0: what people... Yeah, I was going to say, i got to call myself out. I stay up nights. You could call Cora a tomboy, but I really, I wouldn't recommend it because she'd just knock at your teeth.
1: Frankly, she's one of those people that I would just avoid eye contact with altogether if I were you. She's considered this straight talking gun-totin' woman in a time where straight talking and gun-totin' were exclusively seen as masculine traits. So she's really sort of challenging what it means to be a woman at this time. But we're still at a time where even if you are a straight talking gun-totin' woman, you have to do that undercover. And so she does that. She will wear big dresses and stockings and do her hair like she's supposed to. But when no one's looking, she does sort of fun things like she reads Wild West books.
0: By 15 years old, Cora gets married to this guy, Joe Russell. She describes him as a worthless cuss. Been there, Cora.
1: Haven't we all?
0: Well, somehow, she was able to get a divorce within a few months of that marriage. I, too, have been there, Cora.
1: While I can't say I've been there, I feel like this also speaks to her as well, because divorces can't be common in the late 1800s. Like, that surprises me.
0: Right. Well, from there, she just she goes off to Pittsburgh, and she starts selling whiskey. I have not been there, but, you know, <laughs> there's still time. Sounds like a good plan. Speaking of time, she is just 15. Who is supervising this child? She's 15. She's just traveling around the country by herself, getting a job, selling whiskey.
1: You know who's supervising her? Mae West. She's reading about, and I think Mae West was after this, but I feel like this Wild West folklore is like what's fueling her on this journey. Mm -hmm. So here's Cora. She's 15 years old. She's all by herself. She's working at a whiskey shop. And I guess now would be the time to say that it's 1890s America. And you know what America hasn't done? It hasn't quite figured out the whole child labor thing. So at this time, she was basically, I don't know, I would say like a middle-aged worker at 15 (laughs) years old. (laughs) I'm sure there were kids working in these distilleries.
0: But who was working hardest? And more importantly, who was drunkest?
1: That's a good point. That's a great question.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know what shift meal was, but I picture everybody got a shot.
1: Do you think that during – wait a minute. Do you think – sorry, I have to take a break. You think they were like, let's have children work, but you know what? Let's make sure they get shift meal. You're out of your mind. There was no shift meal. They were lucky if they got like a food break.
0: Drunk children are happy children.
1: <laughs> You're the mother of us too, so it's not
0: promising. Don't call CPS. <laughs> you know – I got to say, for child labor, I'm sure having those little child hands there on deck, it's really helpful. I mean, there's probably all these tight crannies they can reach into if a cork rolls off the assembly line. Plus, you know, if if you hire them young enough, you don't need to give them bathroom breaks because diapers. Oh,
1: my God. But even with all that child labor the economy started to go a bit wonky, which seems weird. How is that possible? They're paying people nothing, yet they're still like, huh, I don't know what to do. Um, And people like Cora and her colleagues at the ripe age of 15 years old were not in a great place financially because it's not enough to have children working. It's also important to not pay them well at this time. I mean, what a time to be alive. So what's a child labor to do when they get laid off? Retire? They're teenagers. Quinn, relax. No. Go back to building Lego sets? Macaroni art? No. Go to school? Absolutely not.
0: This is a really interesting glimpse into the kinds of things Carrie was interested in doing at 15. <laughs> I'd love to see your macaroni art okay. from that period of time, Carrie.
1: <laughs> Take a dance class? Write in her journal about how much she loves Titanic?
0: <laughs> Watch another Disney movie?
1: Listen to musical theater, listen to the Les Mis soundtrack and cry in her bathroom. You betcha. <laughs> What's funny is I was listening to Les Mis, which is about child labor. You know, I think it's a full circle moment.
0: Wow. Yeah. Heavy. Heavy. Well, heavy. what Cora decides to go with is strategic sexual encounters. Oh. That was the correct answer in her case.
1: You know what? Musical deals with strategic sexual encounters. You guessed it. Lay Mis. Here we are.
0: Here wow. we are. Incredible stuff. Thank you. Thank well, you. That's what Cora decides to do. That's her pivot. She goes back to Oklahoma. She starts shacking up with the leader of the notorious Dalton gang.
1: You know what that sounds like to me? Hmm? A strategic sexual encounter.
0: Thank you. That's (laughs) what I thought, right? As if you're going to get a boyfriend when you're 15. Let it be the leader of a gang. I mean... She's way ahead of her time because when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. It's not even, you know, she's not even aware of that. That's not even on her radar, but she she knows. That's the musical she wants to be in. F*** I, Miz.
1: <laughs> I don't think, listen, here's the difference between me and Cora. She was going into sexual, strategic sexual encounters at the age of 15. I've spent 33 years on this earth, and I've never had a strategic sexual encounter.
0: They're the best kind, let me tell you. (laughs) Cora had heard of the Dalton Gang in the news. They robbed trains, they robbed banks all over Kansas. They killed in California and Colorado. But they preferred to do most of their dirty work in Oklahoma on Native American reservations.
1: Let me give you another little history lesson here. At this time... American law couldn't be enforced on Native American land and vice versa. Americans were not bound by Native American law. So outlaws like the Dalton gang could pretty much do whatever they want on the reservation to no consequence. Not cool. Not cool. Not cool cool in a lot. I just want to make it clear, not cool in a lot of ways. Because let's be very honest here. The American government did not treat the indigenous peoples with any respect ever. So they didn't even uphold this end of the bargain.
0: Yeah, and neither did the Dalton gang. Mm -hmm. But a hundred marshals were after this gang, but it didn't matter. For years, they just carried on. And when Cora came to Oklahoma, she met the Dalton gang at a dance one night and then came back to see them over and over and over again.
1: Quinn, it is like a West Side Story moment meeting at a dance and she's surprised at how much they like her open-minded and free-hearted energy which she put it later to a newspaper she got so close to the dalton gang that she started going out with their leader a really gruff cute guy by the name of bob dalton and she called him her sweetheart for a while what a great strategic sexual encounter Encounter. name wow a little sweetheart action
0: Yeah, and this sort of brush with lawless love gave Cora a few new ideas about opportunities in her future. You know, this whole country was in an economic crisis in the mid-1890s. Unemployment's up 35% in some states. So, I don't know, maybe becoming a bank robber isn't the worst idea.
1: And it sounds like the risk is well worth the reward. So Cora, being the OG... Badass that she is, she starts her own gang. She works with an outlaw by the name of John Sheets, who she eventually marries, and a man named Whit Tennyson, who would do anything. Anything? Anything. Listen, if I was starting a gang, I would definitely want that on the resume. Willing to do anything.
0: That's on my resume. I can't believe it's not on yours.
1: (laughs) I think you have to have some parameters and boundaries to anything nowadays.
0: Well, according to the newspapers at the time, it is known that Cora had been the head of a lawless gang of outlaws and cutthroats, and that she's connected with enough highway robberies to send her to jail for a hundred years. It is thought that on her hands is the lifeblood of several human beings. Mm, You know, I, I don't know. I think they might be hyping her up a bit at this point in the game, but there's some truth to this.
1: Instead of blood on your hands, I love that, though. The lifeblood of human beings on your hands. Like, that is so intense to describe someone. Wow. Just had to comment on that.
0: The newspapers in these days got real poetic, didn't they? Real
1: poetic. My gosh. So Cora is also known to have the fastest draw in her gang. And a short temper, too. In 1895, she gets into an argument with this outlaw that accuses her of lying. As soon as the words leave his lips, he draws his gun. But before he could get off a shot, her bullet went right through his heart, and he died where he stood. She commanded a couple of guys to throw his body into the ravine, and I guess they weren't in the mood to test her quick draw, so they did what she said.
0: Cora, she was so tough. She was as tough as any of the men, and she'd take on anyone who said otherwise. Although, actually, most of the time, nobody even knew that she was a woman because she's dressing in men's clothes when she's on raids. And she cuts her hair real short and wears it in a sort of pompadour under a wide-brimmed hat. And yes, she still has a feminine voice, a sort of high voice, but so most people just assume she's a young man. Hence, the nickname the kid.
1: It's really hard. Listen, I don't love that I'm rooting for the criminal in this one, but I got to be honest, I'm rooting for the criminal in this one. She's five feet tall, and she's like just a bundle of nerve and tenacity. and I love that.
0: Yeah, it feels like she wants to prove herself, right? So- Well, it's don't talk.
1: Yeah, well, it's the late 1800s, and so here she is, just like not only like having to find her way in a man's world, but also like societally. Like, I just she's overcoming so much. It's sort of it's amazing that she's able to sort of walk through the world in this way.
0: I agree. I think that she does it by dividing herself into like two selves and sort of code switching, Mm. where she has like her tough. Cora Street self that wears men's clothing and goes by the kid and would shoot you for calling her a liar. And then she has actually a really feminine side as well. And not just because she has to. Like I was reading in the newspaper that Mm -hmm. she was saying things like, Hey, I really like pretty dresses and I like to paint flowers. Like she has a very feminine side as well. She doesn't fit into a tidy box. Um, which is why like you at the beginning are kind of listening and you want to think of her as a tomboy, and that's just not so. She's just so much more complicated than a word like that denotes.
1: Do you think it was the fact that she had to dress like a boy to get respect? It was not that she felt compelled to dress in masculine clothing. It was sort of a tactic of survival to be seen as an equal or to get any sort of respect in the world.
0: Completely, and it makes it more simple too because she is like – this is this one self i have and i understand how to be her and this is this other self that i have and yeah i agree with you that she has to appear a certain way in order for that self to even exist
1: totally i i do think it's really cool cuz she also is walking this like crazy tight rope of if anyone were to challenge her she has to fight back tenfold and i think we see that when someone calls her a liar And she shoots them right away, right? There's like no sort of, there's no room for any gray area with her. It's like she has to defend herself to the death for the sake of survival. Although I will call into question the tactic of shooting someone who calls you a liar, because I got to be honest with you. If I heard of someone calling someone a liar and they shoot them, I would think that there was some truth to being called a liar. Am I careful, wrong in that? Careful, I know, careful, I know, careful. I know. you'll be the next. No, oh, no, You're no, no, going to no. go down. No, Corey, don't come <laughs> after me. I just mean like, don't you think it's an interesting tactic to kill someone if they call you a liar? Because also like- I think I just, it's a
0: great tactic. <laughs> I think she's stopping the gossip train in its tracks and no one else is going to call her that, that's for sure. Could you imagine What I question team? is this guy. I question this guy knows two things about her. He knows that she's a quick draw, and that she has a horrible temper. And, and the next calls thing he does is name call. Frankly, that guy made his bed. He made his grave. I just Let him lie in it.
1: I guess what I imagine is in any reality TV show, there's always a storyline of someone calling someone a liar. And I'm just glad Cora Hubbard is not on those TV shows because <laughs> it would be a bloodbath.
0: <laughs> That'd be a really different Bachelor in Paradise.
1: <laughs> Real Housewives would not look the same. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Around May of 1897, Cora Hubbard and her gang rode to Pineville, Missouri to case their latest target, the McDonald's Bank, famously guarded by Grimace and a six-foot clown.
1: The owner, Ronald, is pale and he has red hair. <laughs> Cora's brother, Bill Hubbard, he comes up with this idea. And you might be wondering to yourself, what? Her brother? I thought she was a loner, just all alone in the world, sort of navigating the West on her own. Well, apparently she is, but also her family's really supportive of her. They're on her team. She keeps in touch, she sends them money, and her brother knows all about what Cora has been up to. In fact, her dad does as well. They were hanging metaphorical postcards on their fridge, but it's the late 1800s, so it's basically like telegrams on ice blocks.
0: (laughs) I guess with Cora's success as an outlaw, Bill wanted to get in on the action, so he comes to Cora and tells her that there's $50,000 inside McDonald Bank, which in today's money is like $1.5 million. So she's like, I'm loving it.
1: I guess she sees a pot of gold at the bottom of those golden arches. So immediately, they begin planning their raid. They move to the outskirts of Pineville for like three months in preparation for their robbery. They gather a bunch of bullets in case things go awry, and if everything goes according to plan, they won't have to fire a single shot, and they can walk away with
0: $50,000. I do like it when burglars take their job seriously.
1: You know, Quinn, I couldn't agree with you more because here's the thing. I don't want a burglar who's a ham. You know, like I want a serious burglar. I don't want a ham burglar. I want a
0: serious burglar. Exactly. And three months, that feels right. It's a ton of money. I feel like it's smart. It's smart to move close by, take your time, do it right. Even though Pineville isn't a big town and McDonald Bank isn't Fort Knox, it's still loaded with loot because it just so happens that that bank sees business from a broad territory. And better yet, there's only a couple guys working the bank, like I said, so it should be easy to handle as long as someone is there to keep guard.
1: Cora and her two gang members, John and Wit, decide that since Cora's the best shot that they've got, that she's going to wait outside the bank while John and Wit deal with the money inside. And Bill, well, he's just going to stay home and wait for them to deliver the money I assume he's family. So like they want to include him. They wanted to hear his plans out, but he doesn't seem like a great asset at this point to have in the field. So they're like, you know what, Bill? You stay home. You just wait for us. Okay. You have a really important job. You totally. Just sit I feel like they wait. amped it
0: up. They were like, Bill, you have the most important job of all
1: of all of us. And that's
0: to sit here yes. and make sure. That this chair doesn't move. Yes, because you, you don't want
1: to. You don't want to go to the bank. You don't want to deal with people. Ugh. You know. You don't want to be it's sitting be outside. Boring. It's be so boring. You know. It's gonna be more fun here. You know. I'm jealous of you. Do <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was you. Ah. You get that job. Lucky you.
0: That's the job I wanted. <laughs> well, the plan is really simple. It's just a matter of waiting for the right moment to strike, when the town is quiet and empty and the marshals are away
1: the marshals are away so the robbers will play will play around 10 a.m. on august 17th 1897 john and witt mount their horses and they drive into town to scope out the mcdonald bank main street is practically empty there are no marshals in sight nothing is amiss now's the time to strike
0: They ride three miles back to their base camp and tell Cora it's go time. She leads the trio as they ride with rifles slung on their saddles and six shooters on their hips. On the stoop of the bank, three men are chatting, the cashier, the bank president, and the county treasurer. Before they can even get their hands up, John and Whip have them at gunpoint and are pushing them into the bank.
1: Cora posts up at the door. Her rifle is in her hand. Only a couple of people notice what's going on. This old guy stares at Cora from the road, and a boy starts to approach the door, seemingly unafraid.
0: But Cora stops him right in his tracks, and she yells, any man who tries to cross the door dies. And the boy backs off. People are starting to notice now. Their bank is being robbed. These gangsters are stealing their money but they know better than to cross outlaws, so they just keep quiet and watch.
1: Meanwhile, inside the bank, John and Witt are forcing the cashier to pull out all of the cash from the vault. They've made sure to disarm all the men inside, but, you know, three to two is pretty good odds for them. So they hold out their sacks as the cashier begins pouring bills in, and they're expecting $50,000 in bills and gold. But once the vault is empty and the register is cleared, they see only $600. $600.
0: Oh, man. That hurts. I'm guessing they're pretty pissed at this point. They're just like $49,400 short. Just about. Just about. (laughs) But time's ticking. They got to get out of there before someone alerts the marshals.
1: They've worked towards this for three months. John and Witt force the bankers to stand in front of them as they come out of the bank, and they use them as a human shield so they can load their loot into the saddlebags and mount their horses. I imagine they had a lot more space in the saddlebags for all of those bills and are pretty disappointed when they fill probably like one saddlebag on a horse. They shoot a few rounds off in the air as they gallop out of Pineville with their payday. Albeit a light one, but still a payday. Not a Babe Ruth, not a Snickers, definitely not a (laughs) hundred (laughs) grand. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long
0: You know, I'd really love to be there when John and Wit break the news to Cora that the $50,000 payout was $600. Ooh. If I were Wit, I might make John do it because he's her husband. So presumably if she's angry, she won't shoot him. Unless her marriage is like mine. <laughs> then she'll <laughs> gladly shoot him. <laughs> No, but really, it is more fun to leave them alive and just gloat and bring it up intermittently for the next 20 years.
1: (laughs) I mean, she did get the intel from her brother. And I have siblings, okay? We fight over stupid stuff all the time. So I can't imagine what fight is going to break out over mm, a $49,400 discrepancy. But listen, I'm just going to say right now, I would not want to be there.
0: Mm, well, none of them want to be there, I think. Cora and her gang are galloping out of Dodge. They're just all leaving. They're not headed back to their hideout. They're going to Kansas. They know that it's not going to be long before the Marshals are on their tail.
1: They get about eight miles outside of Pineville to the crossing of the bridge when a sudden ambush of gunfire comes from the other side of the river. A posse from Pineville had run out ahead of them and hid in the ford by the river. God, I feel like I'm talking like Oregon Trail vibes. They hid by the ford in the river.
0: What? And they lost one of them to dysentery. And cholera. The other was bit by a snake. Nope, that's not what happened. But what did happen is John and Wit get riddled with bullets. John's horse is shot dead, and Cora shoots over her shoulder. She wheels her horse around to flee back the way that she came, but then her horse is shot out from under her, and she falls to the dirt with a thud.
1: Wit is nowhere in sight but he's left his horse behind. So Cora, thinking quickly, she hops on his horse, wheels it around, and she tries to get off, but three bullets go right through her hat as John hops on the back of the horse, and they run out of sight and off the trail.
0: Somehow, Cora has escaped this ambush unharmed. Not a single bullet hit her. The same cannot be said for her husband, John, This guy is like Swiss cheese at this point. Once they're sure they're out of harm's way, Cora stops their horse at the shore of a river and takes a look at John's wounds. He has been shot 12 times in his arms, in his chest, in his face. Cora does what she can to tend to his wounds, but they have to just keep moving if they have any chance at survival.
1: Cora then takes off her shoes and she tells John to do the same so they can move quietly and tiptoe in the night. For two days, they walk on foot through the woods until they finally reach a town called Grove, which Cora calls God's Country for Bandits. It's this place where they can buy shoes and medicine without anyone asking what happened to them. There aren't any marshals hunting for them here, and they're able to sort of get their supplies and keep moving. But they do hear word from travelers that a man named Whit Tennyson has been arrested for the robbery of McDonald Bank in Pineville.
0: And Cora, she's thinking to herself, oof, that coward better not rat us out to save his own skin. But something tells her he will. So she and John, they just have to keep on moving.
1: Here's how I know it's not like Oregon Trail. John is shot 12 times and he's still alive. You get one bout of cholera and you're done. You're out and you're out in Oregon Trail, I'll tell you that much. He's still alive? Yeah, that's alive? Pretty
0: crazy, the t- getting shot 12 times and in the face and then being like, you know what? You know what I feel like doing? Going on a two-day straw. Walk,
1: a walk, oh, barefoot. It was that's August, wild. so it's warm, but barefoot. Blood. I mean,
0: it was the old days. Maybe bullets are made out of really old stuff that doesn't hold up well. Maybe it was a Nerf gun.
1: (laughs) Do you think guns were just like highly embellished Nerf guns? I will say, I do think this is an important note to make, which I think like all these conversations about the Second Amendment, I think it's worth noting that like when that came up, when that was written, You could be shot 12 times and not die. I think we're a little bit farther away from that in terms of gun technology now, which, you know, I have to mention because nowadays if you're shot 12 times, I just don't think you'd survive.
0: And I don't think Carrie is trying to make a point about gun control. She's not <laughs> politicizing this. I think what she's saying is bring back those old timey nerf guns. Here's
1: the thing: is if you want Second Amendment, you have to have like a musket that you have to clean out. It takes a good five minutes to reload. Like that. I mean, if you fine, I'm all for it. Bring bring back those guns. That's that's my uh, that's my political sort of argument.
0: Bring back muskets. <laughs> Bring back bayonets,
1: bayonets. bayonets.
0: <laughs> what do we want? Bayonets. Bayon- when do we want them? Now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just, I still can't believe. 12 times in the face and in the chest. And he's wanted a two day walk.
0: Meanwhile, Cora needs a new hat.
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, Cora's hat. Poor thing. Her pompadour. Do you think it cut her hair in there? She did wear it in a pompadour in the hat. Little trim, like a
0: cartoon. <laughs> yes, the hole straight through the pompadour. She
1: did get a different part in her hair after this. She did start doing a center part, like a like the Gen Zer that she is. Cora and John eventually make it to Kansas on a train. She leaves him to recover while she goes home to pay off the debt she owes her father. So we keep making jokes about how this $600 is very, very small in comparison to the $50,000 payout that she was promised. But just to put it into some context, $600 is like $20,000 in today's money. So it's not like it's nothing. She might not be rich, but at least she can clear her debts.
0: John does not want her to go. He begs her not to. He's sure that by now, Witt has told the marshals everything, and they could be lying in wait at her father's house already. But Cora insists she has to go, and by the way, she can take care of herself.
1: Yeah, it's almost like don't tell Cora not to go, because guess what? She gonna go. She gonna go. Girl's gonna go. (laughs) Cora gonna go. Cora gonna do what Cora wants to do. When she gets home to her dad's house, she's dressed in her men's clothes and her dad sort of like opens the door and shakes his head and is like, well, there's my kid. It's like not the homecoming vibe you want, but I kind of like that he's supportive of her and also like, "Ugh, my daughter, what's she up to these days? She gets inside the house and she has her loot with her and she tells her dad exactly what has happened. The robbery, the chase, everything. And you know what he does in like a very typical dad moment? He just like shrugs his shoulders and shakes his head. And I imagine he's like, Cora, Cora, Cora.
0: I feel like he's like, Cora, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. And
1: he pours himself a whiskey that she got him for Christmas because she got a discount when she worked in the distillery. It was like a Father's <laughs> Day gift. And she's yeah, like, Yeah, he dad. liked
0: it better when she was working at the distillery, he getting did. him that whiskey discount. Well,
1: it's I think for any father, it's probably hard to see your daughter, you know, go from strategic sexual encounters to robbery. You know, I think that, I don't know. But it is a
0: slippery slope. It
1: it is a slippery slope with strategic sexual encounters. And I think it's important to know that this isn't the dream that he had. He just wanted his 15-year-old daughter to work in a factory at a distillery so he could get some cheap whiskey.
0: Well, she robbed a bank and now she needs to do something with that loot. So she goes out back and buries her share in the family garden. Most of it Under the potatoes.
1: Which is pretty far down, right? Because potatoes are a root vegetable?
0: Oh, I didn't think of it that way, but you're probably right, Mm -hmm. which is a good thing. Get it down there. Then she puts on her calico Mother Hubbard dress and tosses her men's clothes away. She's dressed as good Cora now, as, as Lady Cora.
1: She's dressed as Lady Cora. Some might say also Mother Goose vibes is what I imagined her Mother Hubbard dress looks like.
0: Yes. Then she turned and went to the cupboard to fetch her poor doggie a bone.
1: <laughs> and then there's a knock at the door. And she goes in her beautiful little dress. and She opens the door and there she finds the barrels of 25 guns pointed at her face. The marshal commands her to hold up her hands or be shot dead. And Cora, she just laughs. She laughs in their faces. She steps back, raises her hands like a kid playing cops and robbers. She never once took them seriously. She didn't believe for a second that they'd shoot her.
0: No, but it is kind of overkill, right? The 25 of them coming to get her. I mean, it does speak to sort of uh, the lore that already surrounds this woman. They seize her and they lead her out to the street. They won't even let her put on shoes. Oh, rude! very rude. They go inside the house. They find her gun. The handle is etched with the name Bob Dalton of the Dalton gang. And there are seven tick marks scratched into the wood, presumably for each kill. The marshals go out to the garden And right away, they find Cora's share of the stolen money. And I think that's, you know, that seems crazy fast. How did they know that that's where it was? Who told them? The potatoes? I bet, you know what? What? I bet it was the potatoes, and she had banked on Silence of the Yams.
1: (laughs) Quinn... I wanted to not laugh. I wanted to not laugh, but you get me. Every time you get me, the silence of the yams. I know, I remember (laughs) reading this in the newspaper and I was like, of course they knew where to look. It's like unsettled dirt. Could you imagine? She like has dirt over her dress or like in her fingernails. And they're like, where did you put the money? And she's like, "Uh, I don't know. I don't know. She has like dirt all over her face. It's like a kid who just ate chocolate and has (laughs) chocolate all over. And they're like, did you eat the chocolate? They're like, no, I don't know what you're Mm -mm. talking about. That gives me Cora vibes. Eventually, her brother, Bill, is arrested, and then her husband, John Sheets, shows up at the Hubbard House two days later. I assume he was like, where's Cora? Hmm, I should go check on her at this place that I told her not to go. So then he arrives at the Hubbard House, and guess what? He's arrested. Just as John feared, Whit Tennyson, you guessed it, ratted them all out. After being shot off his horses on the road, he fled into the woods. Then he walked a dozen miles to Oklahoma before he was caught by vigilantes. What was arrested and he was questioned by the marshal in Pineville. And he caved like a cave. What is... (laughs) He folded (laughs) like a leaf. He folded like... What is the phrase?
0: He folded like a laundry.
1: He folded like a laundry. And he tells them everything, and I mean everything. And then when Bill was arrested, Cora's brother, he also folded like, like a, a letter, <laughs> like a portfolio, like a like a Manila envelope, and he admits to everything too. God, she is all these people are just ratting her out.
0: Yeah, it sucks. And when all is said and done, Cora Hubbard the bravest woman highway robber of the century, has little choice but to plead guilty. She would really rather not face a long and drawn-out trial when she knows that, at this point, they have plenty on her, so why why deny it? She confesses everything in a tell-all newspaper story, and of her brother's betrayal, she says, wait until I get out, and I'll fix him.
1: And let me tell you, siblings' words our true words. Cora and her husband are sentenced to 12 years in the Missouri penitentiary. Whit Tennyson, despite his cooperation with the police, he is sentenced to 10 years. Snitches and after- get stitches. <laughs> and equal sentences. Well, he gets two years apparently. and two years off, apparently. And then after seven years, Cora is released for good behavior. And while in prison, she learns how to sew and says she's planning on becoming a seamstress.
0: But once she's free and her life of crime is far behind her, we don't really know what happens to her. We can only hope she lived a good life and took some comfort in regaling folks with the tale of her wild outlaw adventures. So more to Cora's credit. Since were kind of secret fans, not so secret fans, is that when she got interviewed by the paper, she was like explaining why she robbed the bank. And she was like, well, what I aim to achieve was having nice clothes, getting anything and everything you want, and to be with somebody that you think lots of. That was like her life picture. That was her and I'm mission like, statement. I yeah, I'm on board I like with it. that mission
1: statement. I also think it's interesting that became a seamstress because she's here talking about having nice clothes, and now she can do that herself, which feels also very much in line with who she is. It was like if she wanted something, she didn't, she couldn't depend on anyone else. She couldn't depend manifest on anyone it. else. I mean, this is a time of manifest destiny, and I think Cora took that very much to heart. But I am struck by this idea that she lived this life of, like, quick drawing, straight-talking, sharp-shooting, and then she becomes a seamstress. Like, I I can't Hmm. imagine that she just stopped being a criminal when she got out of prison. Hmm. Like, I, I imagine as a woman, especially at this time, she was getting a taste for respect and independence. Right. And... And just hanging it up to live as a seamstress feels, I don't know, it just, it doesn't feel like what happened. So, my hope, my wish for Cora, Lady Cora, if you will, is that I hope she went on to continue to be a badass and she just never got caught, which is why we don't know anything. Like I hope that she just like she just changed.
0: Yeah. She did some white collar crime stuff, a little less flashy. No, she just never got (laughs)
1: caught. She just never got caught. She just kept going and she just was like, I'm gonna be a seamstress, like I'm gonna daylight as a seamstress. Well, you know, plan robberies.
0: Maybe she took that sewing skill and just put it to use right away by sewing her brother's lips together. (laughs) Or or Maybe she started like um, whatever the equivalent of Etsy would have been back then, like an embroidery shop on Etsy where she would like needlepoint fun sayings into the sides of like women's bonnets. (laughs) Like she could do like, I'm your huckleberry or don't squat with spurs on. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff like that. That's cute. I would buy one.
1: That visual of don't squat with spurs. Just, like, imagine, like, copper tone baby, like, sort of art on a bonnet, and I really love that for Cora. I mean...
0: Ooh, ouch. I, I, think,
1: <laughs> I think Cora... I really love Cora. I think she really challenges... She really challenged a lot of norms at the time, and I think that's why Quinn and I are really inspired by her, is she was able to sort of, like, do it herself and be this, like, strong, strong powerhouse, and I... Really am annoyed that wit ratted her out. I'm really annoyed at that. and also Bill Copped to it. I'm really annoyed at the men in her life. Weak men selling out strong women i don't I don't think kindly of them.
0: No, she should have done it by herself.
1: <laughs> I bet she could have i would I wouldn't put it past her. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime, and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing, because it might just be the case we talk about next.
0: We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. An article from the Philadelphia Inquirer entitled, Bravest and Wickedest Woman Ever Known in America, At Last Behind Prison Bars and an article from The World entitled, Woman's Life as a Bandit. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend these sources. "Prime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner and Carrie Epema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg.
1: Our senior producer is John Thrasher.
0: McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer.
1: If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.